Thank you for that girl. The podcast project of the finalist. By Leopold Lambert. Today, Gilbert Simondon and Biohacking with Sarah Shuka. Today, we're going to speak about the body in relation to its milieu, and we're going to do it in two parts. First, uh, through the philosophy of Gilbert Simondon, a French philosopher from the 1950s, 1960s, and um, then maybe more in a, within a political realm. And we're going to do that with uh, Sarah Shuka, who is uh, a thinker and a biohacker, and she's also a PhD candidate at the University of Montreal in their communication department. Uh, good evening, Sarah. Good evening, Rupert. Um, so, we're just to to start uh, to start with a, a small introduction of your work. What uh, what are you what are you interested in right now? Well, right now uh, I just finished um, a year's worth of staying in New York City, where. Um, I started as an intern uh, working for an arts professor at NYU um, who was really interested into the intersection of uh, technology, science, the environment, and uh, art, and um, found it very stimulating to work with her, but in the meantime had um, started taking classes um, biohacking classes, or more specifically synthetic biology and molecular biology classes at this lab called uh, GenSpace, which is um, Brooklyn's biotech community, community laboratory. It's probably the biggest and, and I think the first uh, biotech community lab to emerge um, in, in the world. And it's pretty unique in that it tries to give access to and popularize and explain um, complex science topics pertaining to um, bioengineering, genetic modification, synthetic biology, molecular biology, bioinformatics to, um, to the public, so to people like you and me who would want to know more by doing more and basically by either uh, going to lectures, taking classes, participating in outreach activities, um, because they believe that uh, you get to learn mostly by doing things and, and that by running these kinds of experiments in, in the lab um, you can demystify and sort of start to understand what's really involved in basic biochemical molecular biology processes that um, sort of are part of who we are and, and how we work and um, what we are genetically as bodies. Uh, so that's what I did and now I'm back and I'm starting to write my thesis. <laughs> You're back in Montreal. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll go back to your uh, activities with uh, Jang Space when we'll talk a bit more about the political uh, aspect of this conversation. But first of all let's start with, uh, with this uh, uh, extremely interesting philosophy, uh, philosophical system that uh, Gilbert Simondon created uh, around uh, mostly the concept of individuation, which is like the uh, 
something something very much the, that very much influenced uh, Gilles Deleuze and Félix Guattari in their concept of becoming is uh, trying to trying to bring attention more to the process that uh, makes something happening rather than the finished uh, product of, of this process. Um, so there's there's a, when we were preparing this uh, this broadcast, we were saying that Simonon never really talks about the body per se, but basically this is this is always always here under other names, whether it's the name yes. individual or. Uh, yeah, he's not gonna. He's not necessarily gonna write down the body, but he talks indirectly about bodies a lot, hmm. uh, and he's read Spinoza and Leibniz, and he's read a lot of philosophy very clearly that. Um, makes him very interested in talking about how bodies come to be and what they can do uh, in terms of potential um, instead of discussing them or, or starting from their finished outcome as, as a starting point for philosophical discussion. I see. Yeah. And uh, si since, we, um, since we place this conversation uh, uh, under the the body and its relation to the milieu uh, topic, uh, I think it might be very important for us to define uh, what this milieu is really about for, for Simondon, because I think that when you say milieu, you kind of think right away about as this word as a synonym of, of environment, but this is actually extremely different in Simondon's philosophy. Yeah, it wouldn't be contrarian to talk about milieu as an environment, but that would refer, or you would associate it with some very particular kinds of concepts. Uh, for example, uh, Jacob von Excuse's differentiation between Umwelt um, and, and um, an environment, so world and environment. Um, that's a distinction he makes that sort of that resonates very well with Simondon, but obviously you can't, um, you wouldn't be able to reduce milieu in, um, in a simple exception of the word environment alone. Um, I think the best way to start talking about the milieu in Simondon would be to try to more broadly introduce him um, and what he tries to do in that huge thesis and body of work that is called um, individuation in, in the light of the notions of form and information. I'm just translating it very quickly. It's been published in French, hasn't been published or translated in English yet, but it's been in the works for a long so, time. Soon it will, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and then it's going to be very popular <laughs> when it does. So um, the way I explained it to a friend very recently was that um, Simon was a, at the time a very bright student trying to uh, come with come to terms with a very basic question met metaphysics um, and more specifically in the domain of ontology and metaphysics um, and he was trying to inscribe himself in that sort of philosophical academic very elitist tradition um, and that was um, very sought after in France and very well respected, and that included um, people like Ber Bergson and Merleau-Ponty and um, and so on and so forth. So uh, he had this very basic questioning and this very basic kind of way to put it in terms that are, when you think about it, similar to Heidegger, uh, which. Um, 
start by something like we haven't yet come to terms with um, asking the question of what is being properly, of, of what being is. Mm -hmm. Heidegger does the same thing. He says we've, we've sort of lost ourselves in the question of being from the onset of metaphysics. So from <laughs> ancient Greek times until now, we've sort of we've asked the question in the wrong way. Uh, Heidegger is going to come up with Dasein in Being in Time, and Simondon is going to come with um, the problem of individuation. He does it by basically noticing that since the dawn of ancient Greek philosophy, when you come to um, when you come to qualify or define an individual which is basically the, the tiniest atomic, indivisible kind of entity you could talk about in philosophy. It's always been done in terms of um, form and matter, of this very basic kind of dualistic mm -hmm. model of either form being informed by matter or matter being informed by form. I mean, the scholastics and philosophers in the middle ages spent a lot of time into this. So that 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 is what we usually call the hilomorphic, right? So yes. it's it is the Aristotelian uh, way of considering the world, which is always a kind of uh, association of a form with a matter. And I think if we if we want to explain pretty simply what is individuation by uh, uh, for Simondon, maybe we can do it. Uh, in the exact same way that he's doing it himself, because the the first part of this book is uh, is explaining it very explicitly yes. through the example of the brick, right? Exactly through the example of of the brick, and um, so through that example, what he's going to say is usually what we uh, the way we think that a brick might might be done or processed is through this very simple kind of linear. Um, technique which is just prepare the clay and prepare the mold and and that's it and put the clay into the mold and then it's uh, it's going to be done so he goes against that uh, exception of you know what we what you would cause a hilomorphic um, perspective on clay making and tries to show that both the clay and the mold depend on at least two um, preparatory operations that lead them to being form and matter in the mm. first place. Just to go back a little bit on hilomorphy, so he, hilo come from hile in, in uh, Greek which means uh, which means matter and morphe comes from morphos which which uh, which means a form, right? Yes. And when we when you were explaining right now how to uh, basically fabricate a brick within a, a hilomorphic uh, paradigm, it, it's, it is thought as simply the clay as like the matter and the, the cube which is the form. Mm -hmm. But obviously we know that it's a little bit more complex than that and Simono explains it I think very deep in, in really much many details too. Yes, in a very detailed way of course. Um, what he does is he's going to write at length of the kinds of preparations and cautions that you're going to have to go through when you prepare either of them, either brick or either the mold. 
um, there are several conditions and, and variables and they are very situational and that vary from one set of preparation to another. So uh, clay is not the same depending on the kinds of temperatures that you're working in and the, the kinds of the, the matter itself that, that you're taking, the, the, just the raw material that you're going to be getting. Uh, the mold itself has to be prepared in a way that it doesn't break the the clay once it's put in it. So it's really about making sure in a lot of um, an impressive amount of details that Simono gives you that the proper amount of forces will be applied on both sides of form and matter for something like individuation to take hold and to make a uh, uh, clay brick, mm -hmm. which is something that we just tend to take for granted in its fabrication and that composes a lot of our built environment without us even thinking about its importance or its origin or how it's been developed and, and maybe lost through time and then developed again and, and the kind of um, significance it has for us in terms of how it informs our lives and our way of living and, and the very things we're able to afford in terms of um, living environments and built environments and, and effective environments too. Mm -hmm. so there's, a, there's all that that comes into play. And I, and I think to, to go back to the example of the break, Simon Don describes the, the operations that's being made uh, within the mold as like, uh, he, I think he, if I remember correctly, he says, he writes literally that one should be able to be within the mold to really understand what's, what, what is going on in terms of energy and in terms of how the milieu, uh, what he calls the associated milieu, right? Like the, the milieu that, that is... Um, that, that is uh, that gathers all those conditions of pre preparation of the clay and preparation of the, the scaffolding, the, the, the molds to to materialize their the shape before the shape actually actualizes through the brick. Um, and uh, and he describes really this uh, how this microphysics uh, of of the of the brick transforms or what we could call the macrophysics of their uh, of their of the brick itself and maybe ultimately for uh, the architects uh, listening <laughs> uh, the, the building itself because obviously all the scales are communicating with each other so if, if we if we go back maybe to this to this kind of description but within their still remaining with the with the ideas that we're talking about the body here and maybe to associate it with your own uh, research as a biohacker what what could you say about that Yes, well, the way that I started working on my previous experience and, and my continuing experience as a biohacker, biohacker was to ask myself some really basic questions such as um, coming from a background which is communications and media theory, that's where I make the connection with the notion of milieu is, mm. is the connection of media. Um, what if we start seeing um, entities like cells or enzymes or um, liquid media which basically are liquid preparations that you're going to grow bacterial or yeast cultures into and make them happy and um, that are going to basically allow you to work with them as such as cells that you can use in a lab 
what if we start seeing these entities and, and these um, bodies or tiny organisms as media? And media here is extended in a very, very general way, not to mean something that would be associated with mass media, such as TV or the internet, or, um, but more generally as some kind of intermediary or, um, or a link or a relation uh, between two terms that also, um, first of all, allows them to communicate together and allows them to transform each other and to become something greater than what they were separately initially, which is basically also um, that corresponds to Simonon's notion of transduction. Uh, what you were talking about um, previously about um, there being many scales and domains of individuation where you can go from the microscopic level of atoms that sort of align correctly within a clay arrangement and, and then that you're able to scale up and get all the way up to the way we address our very relationship with buildings. Uh, that is something that's totally possible to do and to start thinking with something like Simonon's philosophy because transduction basically is what allows you to do that. So within this clay arrangement something goes on when it's shaped into a brick that still contains enough potential to be addressed as a further problem. So the further problem not only becomes, okay, here's the clay, but how do we become, how do we make it become a building, and how do we live within it, and how does that organize our social and cultural structures, and how does those clay bricks together form another kind of associated milieu for us to work together and to live together. And so uh, basically that's sort of very roughly how I came to think about a way to integrate a thought of um, life maybe as media, that's the big question that I'm asking, uh, to make a parallel between life as, as biomatter or as biomaterial in contrast to previous materials that we've had and worked with uh, all along, including um, the organisms and, and the, ve I mean, the vegetables that we have growing for centuries and the animals that we've d domesticated that also make us the, uh, the city, urban animals that we are, who also have to live and be informed by different biotechnologies that we've been uh, working with and preparing for thousands of years that also make us who we are. So I'm talking here about things like animal husbandry and agriculture and architecture and um, climatization, for example. If you want to go to something uh, that, uh, say, Peter Sloterdijk has worked with a lot, but in another sense, but just this idea that we've insulated ourselves from the external world or from some elements of the external world in order to be able to open ourselves within the inside as well as the outside to each other and to start forming something like like a polity and to start asking ourselves the question of how do we live together how do we make politics out of this kind of um, techno 
or biotechnolo biotechnological arrangement or configuration in, in my case. Uh, and and we'll we'll come back very it's soon. It's a very to, to meaty explanation. We'll we'll come back very <laughs> soon to this political aspect, but I, I don't want to go too fast. No, and not too fast. I th I think from what you were saying, I I realize that it's important maybe to state that. Um, we we usually we usually imagine like th this whole topic is about the body and we usually imagine the body as like one entity uh one very defined entity and uh i suppose that we we used to define the limits of this entity by like let's say the skin or something like that like we we have a very clear idea of what the body is however i think we quite don't realize that uh the body is not one thing it's actually a an assembly, an assemblage of many, 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 many things, yeah, and that, totally right that that's what that. you were you were talking about, yes. and um, and um, not and not only not only is there is there is this assemblage of many many things, but I I don't think there the limits of the body are quite as clear as we as we usually think it, it is because the very fact that to 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 just to give a very small example, the very fact that we are able to feel that somebody is behind us if, if he or she is like, at, uh, let's say, one inch away but without touching really means something about the fact that our own body has a tremendous uh, uh, intensity of influence within its direct environment and uh, I think, I think it, is, it is really within the spirits that this topic is, is being thought here and I think it's very clear to Yes. It, it's very important, sorry, to make it clear. Yes, the Simondon has some very powerful and succinct as well as developed lines of thinking to try to address that question. Although, again, sort of indirectly, but you can just clearly think that those terms apply still. I mean, for myself, I find that, for example, talking about individuation straight away to people who don't know either Simondon or what individuation is or what individual individuals are or why they're important will try to use other words and one of the words that can come is the body because mm. um, you do mention it very well and you do explain it very well when we think about a body we think about this unified self-contained sort of autonomous kind of possibly indivisible or atomistic um, thing that uh, stands out for itself, like like some kind of object that would not necessitate our participation or our perception in any way to exist. It's a very um, it, it's it's sort of the idea that first comes in mind when you might think about bodies and what people like Simon Dondu will be to try to attract the attention to the kinds of processes that make you feel like you're within a body in the first place. And he's going to say wonderful things to differentiate, for example, the feeling within the body of an animal in contrast to the feeling of being within the body of a human. And he's going to say things like animals are much more well equipped to live rather than to think, but humans are better equipped to think rather than to live. And that's very interesting because it asks the question of how, how did we, through technical 
uh, interventions and inventions and innovations of all kinds that we sort of shelter ourselves out to be able to um, address problems that wouldn't have been necessarily possible in other ways. Uh, so how do we create those milieus that make us properly who we are uh, in contrast to animals who are, are not necessarily better or worse than we are just because they're, the, the simple reason is they have other kinds of problems to solve. And, and they've sort of stopped and, and um, I wouldn't say they, they individuated themselves all the way or they don't have further problems to solve. It's, it's not, you, you can't see this as a progression. You shouldn't see this as something that, you know, goes from cells to, or atoms to cells to the organs or organized life of some kind, then to animals and then to humans. Hmm. Where, you know, but I, I, I suppose one way to say it is that uh, the difference between a human and an animal is not a difference of essence, it's a, pro it's a difference of intensity. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And the question of the body in there is very important because what he, what Simondon tries to show is that in both cases, the same kinds of problems relating to, say, perception, sensation, affect, uh, the formation of some kind of subjectivity, uh, identity, identity, sorry, a sense of place, um, all play into uh, dynamics that are not differentiated in matters of nature, as you say, but of degree. Mm -hmm. And in it, what he also tries to show is that for animals, that kind of how they get to have a body with organs of particular organs of prehension of nutrition and you know he's going to call like effectors and, and captors of all kinds how that basic kind of problem is the same but it's solved in many many different ways and how that ultimately also shapes the kinds of uh, bodies and the possibilities that we have and the problems that we're further confronted to that's how I would take it I see uh, maybe going back to this problem of multi multiplicity of the body and, and, and uh, extending now the topic to maybe a more a political realm I'm, I'm thinking that maybe we should, we should while talking about Simondon we should maybe ban the words individuals for example and talk only about individuation as, uh, a, as a process now you would disagree with that I wouldn't ban the word individual <laughs> There are individuals in some of those. There are individuals. Yes, yes the, um, I, the individuation is a continuous process, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but it also leads to different individualities. But it doesn't mean that you're in, in that you are an individual that you're finished individuating yourself. Mm. For example, um, you can be an individual. You can be an individualized person in society. According to Simon Law, you can have a job, you can have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, you can be married, you can have kids. Do you uh, have a certain status, a certain standing? You have this sort of very stable kind of set of representations and ideas of who you are. You could stop there. You could be very happy with where you are. A lot of people are very happy with where they are, just having those things. Cars, dogs, big houses, trips, more things to buy. They're, they're happy to go through their lives like that. But 
if life for you still has problems after all this is done, you will seek other kinds of solutions, and you will still continue to individu to individu individuate yourself, sorry, um, towards some other kind of scale of accomplishment. And so Simondon uh, talks about this in ways that I mean I should read that whole part again, and I should definitely. Um, uh, read his text at least once or twice more to be able to come back to you with with a better answer uh, but there's definitely the possibility for him of what he calls at this point a collective individuation mm. which is a very politically charged mm -hmm, kind mm -hmm. of individuation as well uh, although we might not want to get there well uh, that's right where away. no that's actually where I was going going uh, to was maybe a an associated concept to, to this concept of individuation, which is the concept of trans-individuation. Trans like the, the idea yes. that uh, in a given society there can be a... And when I mean society, I mean society in a very uh, common uh, uh, use of this word, but maybe also a society of cells, I suppose, or a society of, uh, of uh, different entities. Uh, there is this idea that um, uh, parts can create a collective uh, that is actually becomes uh, more than just the sum of this part of, of parts. its parts. Yes. And 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 Simon don't names that tr trans individual. Yes, trans individuality. Mm -hmm. He's going to play in very analogous terms. Simono actually has a whole concept of analogy, which is also really difficult. Sometimes to it's understand. a bit confusing. Yeah. It is very confusing. The way he explains it is. I mean, I've been reading him for three, four years, my, f my friends have been as well, and we're still coming to terms with some <laughs> of those definitions, we just don't know what to exactly do. Maybe the translation will help, who knows. Hopefully, <laughs> yes. So, what he does, basically, is he tries to apply, or to, not to apply, just to distinguish and see and try to understand the same kinds of basic systems or structures informing different kinds of domains of being or reality. Um, Simone talks about being all the time and what he says is basically we haven't understood what being is. Uh, being is always more than one. Mm. Being is not just one. And he's going to try to hit at the core, the very founding moment of something like metaphysics, with Parmenides, for example, who's going to say being is, uh, being cannot be becoming, because it's becoming is corruptible, becoming is changing, becoming is um, not as stable as, you know, if, if we sort of wanted to try to bang our heads on the wall trying to find a good definition for being at the time if it would be something that is permanent rather than impermanent mm -hmm. and, and never changing instead of changing what being would be. And so Simondon is going to completely inverse the steam on this sort of idea, uh, which is so, and he's, try, try, he's going to try to go back at the core of metaphysics and ontology by demonstrating that um, that being informs, sorry, that becoming informs being instead of the opposite. And so he's going to try to find through all kinds of those skills of living in organized matter and organized bodies something that would always enable them to not necessarily um, prolongate their individuations into something that would be better, but just to say that depending on where you are, you might have 
some pre-individuality left or some potential left that would make you transform yourself into something that's not quite what you think you were. Uh, and so the way he's going to explain it is, it's, it's, you could say, yes, it's the sum that's greater than its parts, but for him, it's a little more subtle than that, and that what he's going to say is, for that kind of communication between different skills to happen, you will need some kind of basic difference, or signifying difference, or gap, uh, what he calls in his terms a disparation. Uh, one, one more word. Another very complicated <laughs> word. We should have a uh, normal English or a simplified English version of Simon yeah. at some point with, uh, <laughs> with with words that aren't so scary at first. Mm. So so through that through that kind of basic discrepancy, what he's going to say is elements that didn't communicate before because they belong to different domains of of being a reality can communicate through that major difference or that signifying difference, and that altogether is going to allow them to transform themselves energetically into something that's just another phase of being, uh, with another individuation problem uh, sort of hitting them if there's another charge of potential. Um, and something we might not have talked about so much right now, which is uh, probably very important to understand uh, the relationship that Simondon uh, maintains between his work and, and, and uh, politics uh, would probably be in their if we go back to the example of the break and and um, uh, he's, uh, he's on paradigm against uh, hedomorphic and we actually did not say the name but the paradigm that he's establishing is called the alagmatic so alagmatic coming from uh, the exchange of, uh, of change and um, if I if I understand it correctly, I think that this this scheme is um, extremely focused on the on the energy that is needed to to actually uh, produce well the brick in that case, but uh, pretty much any the 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 energy that is involved in any of those uh, of those uh, proce process that he's so interested in, and uh, and the very the, the political act is is definitely based on this energy. I I think. Yeah, definitely. I I think I I uh, I tend to agree with you a lot on this, and to, I'm gonna try to expand on it. The way I I link out more concretely or more directly a link between politics and Simondon's philosophy would be through aesthetics, actually. Hmm. Um, so the thing with the break and being able to make a good brick, or to become a good bricklayer, or to become uh, adept at any kind of technical or technological um, mode of invention or intervention or, or even imagination for Simondon would rely on basically the brick maker to be able to individuate himself as he's also making that brick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Therefore, the brick maker becoming a brick maker as he's making that brick. Uh, the brick maker is not going to precede the brick. The brick doesn't exist without the brick maker. Uh, and for the brick maker to be able to come to that level of, of um, 
I wouldn't say perfection. I would just say to come to the point where the break is well um, is formed in continuity with its environment. Uh, you need a lot of attunement as as a person. I mean, you need to train your senses and in your way to, to feel and be affected by that break in a very, very specific way. Mm -hmm. So that's also part of the milieu for, for me. So uh, I, I would tend to absolutely agree with you on this and what I'd like to do is to try to start to answer the question of aesthetics or the notion of aesthetics in that, uh, in that sort of mode of analysis. But the way that I think about aesthetics is not in that, not in the way we would think about it in terms of our relationship to beauty or art, or, um, but in a very sort of ancient Greek-derived etymology, which is the relation that we have towards, with our senses, or the relation our senses have with what they perceive and the stimuluses that activate them. Um, and I take it from Jacques Rancière, who in a, a book called Politics of the Sensitive, because you can translate it as sensible, um, but in French it's Politique du Sensible, mm -hmm. um, which is a book that I haven't fully read, but whose introduction I found very inspiring in that way, because that's exactly how he defines it. And he starts from there to discuss art in relation to politics. And he has a very interesting notion of politics in that book as well, um, which concerns for him the ways that we allow for certain people to feel or perceive in a certain way. Uh, just that's, but, but that's, that's a generalization of mine. I mean, it's been a very long time since I've opened that book. It must, it must have been at least two years ago. So starting from that, what I'd like to say about, for example, to go back to the brickmaking, uh, what's going to be involved when you start delving into the art of brickmaking or when in that matter you start getting involved in... Uh, fermentation or beer making or liqueur making or gardening or any kind of um, practice or embodied activity and here the term embodied is very important is that not only in that process do you come to create things or to um, to develop and and produce technological artifacts or art products of, of any kind, but you also make and produce yourself as the producer mm. of those things. And our listeners will be probably sensitive to the fact that you're very familiar with those activities. You cook, you, you mushroom, you, <laughs> yes. you garden, you're, right. you, you brew your own beer. Uh, so that's, that's something that you do more than talking, you're actually doing it as well, right? Yeah. I generally try to take as much from the senses as possible mm -hmm. and to inform myself in as many ways as possible. So drinking wine or drinking beer is going to be a um, psychedelic experience for me in the sense that um, I, my, my spirit or something like, like a soul would be 
uh, called on to the appreciation of, of something, and it, I don't want to separate soul with body in there. I mm -hmm. just want to say that it, it's it's a very fancy and old term of saying that I feel particularly engaged, and I really like being engaged in all those sorts of activities. So whether it is cooking, or cheese making, or photography, or writing. Um, keeping in mind that I'm always doing those things in an embodied way that is within a body that can and cannot do certain things or that has to practice and learn and modify itself and adapt itself and transduce itself within its environment is a very important question and I, I just I've always tended to do stuff like that okay um, and and I suppose that those activities and are you, you're you're able to articulate them within a, a more political discourse, right? Yes, but it's to me it's so uh, the problem with it is 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 it's too much of a restrained um, kind of politics in that most of what I study are particular groups of people, or you you could call them communities of people, who through their same interest to either a practice or an activity, come to get together and exchange on you know, what makes them so happy to do what they do and how they could further knowledge and practice and, and improve those practices and, and um, modes of being and, and, and who they are and sort of facilitate that for each other. Um, and that's in, in the technical or technological realm, you, you have a lot of that. Uh, you have very uh, sort of uh, old versions of that in the artisan, uh, intern or artisan learner relationship, but it's not quite like that anymore. Uh, it's just technologies have changed, modes of organiz organizations have changed, and, and we still live culturally and, um, and organize ourselves politically have changed as well, and I take those kinds of groups and, and communities of, you could call them communities of practice, but that's not exactly the term that I have. But I'm thinking mostly of, say, uh, hacker collectives or maker collectives, or people who get together to do uh, molecular biology together, which is what I'm trying to do. So what comes out, out of this is that through cultivating their senses and their awareness of their practice and in trying to improve their relationship with the things that they're concerned with and engaged into, that is, uh, the products that they are producing and the objects that they um, that they make and in the environments that they end up surrounding themselves, not only with those those objects but also um, their friends, colleagues, uh, people who also do the same thing, are also at some point starting to get concerned into the very conditions that allow them to do so in the first place. Mm -hmm. I know it's very... No, but let's talk about that because uh, so far you talk about their communities and their production and them coming together to actually produce that. And so you you describe that within a, a certain positivity. Uh, I, I don't mean positivity in terms of, of moralistic matter. I, I mean like in the, in the production of something. However, I think there is also uh, there is also another aspect to it, which is pretty much depending on the conditions you were just referring to, 
and and which I think your uh, the political political action you're thinking of is also very uh, very much in in a certain resistance to um, the institutionalization of uh, such practices and and therefore there the the it's a very connotated word, but democratization yes. of those practices. So, uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I think it just comes naturally. It's uh, the word that I found for it, and I'm not the first one to find to have <laughs> suggested that. Don't worry, it's not my idea. Um, is ethos that is uh, something that precedes ethics in that it's not a formalized or rational kind of discourse oriented into uh, what's best for us and what's the best way to do things and, and the best way sort of a general kind of reflection on what well-being is or um, or how, how we can attain well-being in, in, in the best way possible. Uh, but it would be rather about just finding ways to co-evolve and to exist or to engage in a very sort of day-to-day uh, -day kind of informal way um, to uh, improve our own conditions of existence. So it's a very kind of diffuse, uh, non-institutionalized kind of perspective on ethics, basically. Um, and so I use that to try to describe how those people and people like me sort of have this almost instinctive idea that by uh, learning to make something or learning something that makes your life better or improves your living condition, makes you happier as a person, makes you healthier, or helps you to um, develop further and changes your modes of engagement or your modes of embodiment changes the way the very way you think about your body and the way that you are in your body how can you extend that to other people how can you make sure that other people might not have might not have to go through the same hurdles that you had to go through and through the same pitfalls and through uh, how can you make it easier for other people to can, to come to those same kinds of results and it's something that just comes out of a very playful sort of curious attitude um, that you have towards whatever your mode of engagement is or whatever your favorite practice is, whether it be thinking or doing something specific or doing making a, doing a job that you're very, very at ease with or that you're proficient into. Um, and it can, be, it can be exemplified in so many ways. It could be um, a lawyer, for example, deciding to not only take on cases pro bono, but also trying to teach um, his clients or other people who don't really have the means some law concepts mm -hmm. or how to better understand the sort of law system that they're into. It concerns a practice that in my mind is not only um, rational but also very embodied. And that's very important to me because it just sort of comes out this natural kind of extension of what being involved in a practice as a body is. Mm -hmm. um, and may maybe to give another example, I mean, you, you give us uh, the example of the lawyer, which is a uh, uh, relatively old profession, but uh, when we prepare this broadcast together, you told me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you told me about this uh, ability now that we have, thanks to uh, biotechnology, to to be able to read their human genome in such a way that uh, uh, you, you would be able to actually uh, propose or 
let's say a healthier uh, was that nutritious or no what what was it about but that we we talked we talked about that as yes. some things that is proposed essentially to uh, a certain class social class of people and that we can ultimately maybe think to democratize yeah well I, it wouldn't be specifically on the, the ability to read a whole genome because the human the human genome is pretty big <clears throat> um yes yeah, there's a lot of drugs on in there it's <laughs> <laughs> like 32,000 uh genes in the human mm -hmm. uh genome uh, no, but you're you're very right on this. What I was more specifically talking about, and I was taking uh, the example of my dog. Uh, my dog has uh, some kind of problem. I'm not sure it's a fungus. I would like it to be a fungus because <laughs> you're like a fungi. fungus. <laughs> <laughs> or if it's allergies, but she does have capillary problems, and that if you leave her alone for too long, she's going to basically lick herself until she passes out. Mm. possibly but she will be completely breathless and her paws were, will turn bright red and she's going to be she's very visibly affected by that condition now testing her for either allergies or some other kind of uh, illness or condition is really expensive it's it's just something that very few, that few companies specialize in and that uh, for somebody with a, an income like mine can't afford so I was thinking is well, there's probably a way to cultivate those capillary cells and to make them grow and to be able to ascertain whether it is a fungi or not. And so there's this um, a few kind of initiatives like this also started in the past few years where, um, for example, concerned parents would start to learn as much as possible as they could on the conditions of their children and would start running, say, um, bioinformatic um, uh, algorithms and would try to sort of just see for themselves if they can isolate the particular uh, gene or um, chromosome that was responsible for their kids' illness. So that's, that's uh, sort of happened already. I wouldn't say with uh, unconditional success. I mean, what I'm... What I'm saying is those kinds of attempts have emerged and they're more and more becoming a preoccupation. Uh, people, instead of being proposed very, very costly, almost impossible genetic therapy pr procedures to afford it, unless you're really rich and you can afford it without a problem, start to try to turn on how to educate themselves and try to find other ways to assess their problems and to um, heal or propose alternative therapies or at least ways to diagnose uh, what they have in a more um, sort of informal um, informal way. I mean that, that to me is that falls within the realm of um, self um, it's not self-medication because obviously but self-testing and so uh, yes I, I think it's it's very pertinent to politics because when you think about it, you start to realize that all of those practices, for example, being a doctor or a nurse or a pharmaceutist, pharmacician, pharmacist, pharmacist, that's right. <laughs> that's what happened when two non-native English speakers are speaking Talk to each together. other. <laughs> Our pharmacists are a hyper-normalized and normed and coded uh, practices that are not uh, 
that are very secured and and normalized and um, sort of laid out in a very specific way. Uh, not everybody can start writing a prescription. You know, you, there's a very specific or way you have to go in order to even be able to start doing that or to start playing in people's tummies by opening them up. Mm. And then, you know, I mean, um, for a good for a good cause. Don't this proved risky. <laughs> yes, for a very very good reason. But the thing is, outside of that, what I think these people want to prove is. It's not the only way we have to go in order to um, heal ourselves or make sure we attain optimal health. And so there's this, I wouldn't say it's non-institutional because it has a lot to do with institutional modes of, of power and delegation and practice and engagement. I just, I would call them as sort of either compliments or um, or institu institutionally or non-institutionally informed ways, intermediary ways, uh, to to do away with the constraints that politically uh, disable some kind of people from um, from getting basic health care, or from not getting ruined <laughs> when they need specific care for some kind of problem. So there's a lot in there and. Uh, um, some people in uh, biohacking or DIY biologies, uh, what I'm mostly into. Um, some people are into that. Some others, for now, focus mostly on uh, studying bacteria and yeast and, and trying to develop protocols that would enable us to better understand those systems and our interactions with them and help, hopefully, um, develop applications that would improve um, living conditions regardless of where you have to patent something. Uh, so that goes against a lot of you know, the political economy of genes and genetics, which is hyper-patented. So it's a, big, it's a big minefield, it's a big playing field, um, and, and there's a big confrontation going here. Because right now might be a crucial moment about these kind of things, right? Yeah, there's been, I mean, the uh, Myriad genetics session that uh, came out a few weeks or mm -hmm. a month or so yeah. ago. I think it was a couple months. Well, by the time uh, this podcast will yes. come out, uh, quite some months ago. <laughs> so, well, I mean, what you can feel from those kinds of landmark rulings is that uh, who gets to have a say about the way you're body works on a molecular level is mm. not quite set yet. That there might be hope that it's not just going to be about patenting everything mm -hmm. under the sun. And so those biohacking initiatives are also about that, about saying, well, you know, we can work on some things outside of those private labs, outside of closed doors, and we can start explaining to people what we're concretely doing and how to discern between uh, what's good I wouldn't say good genetic modification, but where does it occur more or less naturally and how to uh, understand it or study it in a way that makes you a more informed person on what genetic modification is at its basis. Okay, well, so I think we, we reached the end of our time, but Sarah, thank you very much for taking this time with us and, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very glad we got to articulate uh, on the one hand, some pretty pretty high, highly 
hopefully not too abstract concepts uh, with Simondon and, and on the other hand some more uh, uh, current uh, biotechnology issues that uh, as, as we said is a pretty at a pretty crucial time right now so thank you very much yeah, I'm thinking here it's my pleasure